0: I invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn almost to the end of the New Testament to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I invite you to follow along. I'll be staying closely with this passage. 1 Timothy 1, if you'd like to use a Bible from the pew, it's, I believe it's 1151, page 1151. so appreciate the guest musicians they're all gone, right um the timpanese player his dad just died and uh, he's having to leave to go to denver and i want to remember him in prayer today i spoke to him before the service first timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17 hear god's word i thank christ jesus our lord who has given me strength that he considered me faithful appointing me to his service Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So ends the reading of God's word. Let me lead us in a brief prayer. Our Father, may you send your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds as we look now at your word that declares your majesty. In Jesus' name, amen. It was this day, 493 years ago, October 31st, 1517, that a man who was a college professor and also a Roman Catholic priest, he nailed to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, 95 Latin theses or statements on the subject of indulgences, and he invited discussion on the same. Now, within three years of that action, what we look back on now as the Protestant Reformation was underway, uh, though it is clear that Martin Luther himself never intended that by those actions. At the time that he wrote those statements, he was wrestling at a personal level with how does a man get right with God? How can we have life with God? What is life all about? He was trying to make sense and meaning out of life. Now, like Luther, there lived another man 1,500 years before him. He is the one who wrote these words, and that is the Apostle Paul. He himself had sought diligently to find life with God by being a very religious person, and yet he found there was no answer there. That was no help. So here Paul is writing to his pastor friend, student, Timothy. Timothy was a number of years younger than Paul. Timothy was a pastor in the ancient city of Ephesus, a large commercial city, a large urban area. And Paul writes a letter that we call a pastoral epistle because it was from one pastor to another. And yet, though it was directed to Timothy, it was written with the intention of being read by all the people in the church and the other churches. So there's something here for all of us. In the first part of the chapter, Paul has addressed false teaching in the church. Now he gives like a, an autobiographical section that lasts a couple of paragraphs where he, he reflects on how God had saved him. He, more or less, he gives his testimony here. And so let's look at what he says. It's filled with gratitude. He begins in verse 12 by saying, "I thank Christ Jesus our Lord." And now he tells the story of his conversion and his call to be a missionary. He thanks him for for several things. First, he thanks him that he's given him strength, strength to carry out the ministry that God had called him to. Second, he says, "I thank Christ that he considered me faithful, that Christ was the one who enabled him to be faithful. It wasn't his own stick or his own strength. Third, he said, I thank Christ for appointing me to his service. Now, there are many kinds of service that you and I can perform in the name of Christ, but we believe here Paul was talking about his call to serve in the area of being a missionary, an evangelist, and a church planter around the Mediterranean. Now he gives, you might say, his testimony in verse 13. He refers to himself, what he had been like before. He said, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He is a blasphemer in that he had spoken evil about Jesus Christ, and he had tried to force others to do the same thing. He had been a persecutor of the church. He was zealous. He had tried to do all that he could to destroy the church, to persecute it. And then behind that blasphemy and that persecution, he just summarizes his character as saying he was a violent man. He was a violent man, that his life had been marked, it had been a mixture of arrogance and contempt for others. Now, the details of such are spelled out in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we read about the apostle Paul. He originally was named Saul. He was born in a Roman city called Tarsus, Tarsus was a great center of learning. Saul was educated under one of the best-known teachers of his day, a man named Gamaliel. And he was Jewish by birth, and he was zealous about his religion. And he was way up with the pedigree of his Jewish faith. He had been born of the tribe of Benjamin. He had become a Pharisee. He truly believed that the followers of Jesus not only were wrong, they were dangerous. And so he set out. He set out in his zeal to give full support to those who were trying to silence them. He was there when the first follower of Christ was put to death for that very reason. Stephen, we read about in Acts chapter 6 and 7, was a deacon. And he is stoned to death. And while the people are stoning him, Saul is there guarding their garments and watching over them so no one would steal them. After Stephen's death, he becomes a man on a mission. He gains the authority and the position to see Christians locked up and punished. And so, with that background in mind, Paul says that he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. But he also goes on in verse 13 and he describes how he received mercy. He received mercy from God. Here's how it happened Acts tells us that he was traveling on the road to Damascus to imprison Christians. He's going to see that they're locked up. And a light comes down out of heaven and Saul falls to the ground and he hears a voice speak to him that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he is struck blind for three days. During that time he does not eat, he does not drink, and God sends a believer a godly man named Ananias to see Saul. Ananias is afraid. He's afraid of Saul. He's heard about him. That's how bad Saul's reputation was. And yet he goes, and Saul the persecutor, Saul the violent, becomes Paul the apostle. Apostle means messenger, one who would carry the message from God. And Paul looks back now and says he was a recipient of God's grace and mercy and faith and love and now years later it is still fresh to him to use our terminology today he was still amazed at grace his love and his devotion to christ had not grown cold and so it's no wonder that he goes on here and says in verse 15 that it is a trustworthy statement this is a statement of truth you can count on it that christ jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Well, what is is Paul affirming there? He's definitely affirming that the gospel is true, that it's trustworthy, that you can stake your life on it, you can stake your eternity on it. But he's also affirming that the offer of the gospel is for all people. It's universal, it's not restricted to one race or one corner of the world or one nationality. It is full, it is unreserved. Third, he says the essence of the gospel is that Jesus came to save sinners, people like you and me. And fourth, he says that the application of that is personal, that he had already called himself the least of the apostles, and he called himself the least of all of God's people, and now he humbles himself and says that he is the chief or the foremost or the greatest or the worst of sinners. Now, I have to ask, what did he mean by that? Did he literally mean in comparison to everyone else that was alive in the world that he was the worst? I don't think that was his intent, but let me explain why I don't think that was the case. If you today, just like Saul had done back then, if you today try to get to heaven by being a good person, by living by some kind of religious code or moral code, some kind of external behavior, if that is your attempt, then the way you do that is to compare yourself with others. And you have to judge yourself to be higher up than others are. Legalism always works that way. It has to work that way. So self-righteousness always functions by comparison By finding a moral code that you can achieve and then viewing others as not achieving it. But when we are convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we drop all those comparisons. We just don't even care about those comparisons anymore. Because now we see ourselves before God's law, before His mirror. And I'm not interested in how this guy lives, or that woman lives, or this person. I'm only interested in how God sees me. For example, Christ told the story of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. One was a religious zealot. He would have been seen as a very good man in the community. The other man was a tax collector. His reputation and how he was seen was just the opposite of the Pharisee. They go up to the temple to pray. And Jesus says that the Pharisee stood, stood in the temple, and he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Where's his focus? It's all comparison. It's how he sees himself relative to other people. But the tax collector had a different perspective. He remains in the back. He cannot even lift his head up. He's in a bowed position, and all he can do is beat his breast and say, God, have mercy on me the sinner he's not concerned about the Pharisee in the front of the temple the Pharisee had focused on comparisons as far as the tax collector was concerned there were no other sinners with whom to compare himself he was the one and only and so that's what happens when we see God when we see that we all of us have a problem of sin and God must punish sin and the penalty the punishment is death And so there's nothing we can do to overcome our problems of sin and death. We can't be good enough. We can't be obedient enough. We can't do enough good things to wipe those things out. And so God has sent his son, Jesus, to be a substitute. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He said, I always do those things that are pleasing to my father. And he allowed himself to be crucified on a Roman cross. And while he was on that cross, God takes my sin, all of my disobedience, all of my wickedness and he put it on jesus and then he punished him in my place so he paid the penalty for my sin which was death now when we trust in that when we put our trust in that we see ourselves as we really are and when we see ourselves as we really are we see that we are the worst of all sinners i play racquetball with a group of guys some of them go to churches around town some do not The other day, one of them made a comment that provoked a lot of discussion. He said, I don't ever want Chip to win out here because he gloats when he wins. And I looked at him and I said, "Why? how do you know what I'm thinking about? He said, well, I don't. I said, I'll take that as a compliment because if you knew half of the things I really think about, you'd see that I'm the worst sinner that I know. Kind of got philosophical in a hurry, didn't I? I He didn't ask for that. But I was thinking, if you knew half of my heart, if, if, if anyone knew half of your heart, you would be like Saul and say, I am the worst of all sinners. So he was accurate in that regard that in his mind he was the worst of all sinners. I think that's true of all of us when we see ourselves as we are before Christ, before God. But he also mentions that God had had mercy on him. And he says why? Why God had mercy on him? He said the only explanation is that it was so undeserved. He says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Saul refers, Paul refers to his conversion from Saul to Paul as a prototype, as a template, as a pattern for all redemption of all people in the future. To sum it up, Paul said he'd been a blasphemer and a violent persecutor. But it was this experience of Christ's grace and mercy and patience which fueled Paul's evangelistic passion to carry out missions, to plant churches. Now, if you, and I hope you are, are a believer then you want to be an effective witness for Christ. If you've been around this ministry for years, you know that God calls us all to be witnesses, just not the professionals, not just the preachers and the the missionaries, but we should all bear witness with our life and with our lips. Now, for that to happen, you need three convictions, and, and Paul had them all here. First, you need the conviction that the gospel is true. If you really don't know whether there's a heaven or a hell or whether the bible is true or whether jesus really died and rose from the grave you won't talk about it so you got to have conviction it's true secondly you must be experiencing life transformation god must be at work in your life and you must see that that you are being transformed on a regular basis third you've got to have gratitude for what god has done in you I can vividly recall my thinking and life patterns before I had trusted Christ as a youngster. And it serves me well to recall that, of what God redeemed me from so many years ago. So there must be gratitude. This coming Tuesday, I hope to uh, spend some time with two of my childhood friends. One is one of the pastors at Perimeter Church in Atlanta, and one is a pastor of Christ Church Anglican Church in Savannah. If you know anything about that ministry, it's the oldest church building, oldest ministry in Georgia. George Whitfield and John Wesley both preached there. And my friend Mark Robertson has been the pastor for years. They've been involved in a lawsuit with the Episcopal Church in the United States for years. They left that denomination over the uh, unbiblical views of sexuality and so forth that had been endorsed by that uh, denomination. And they were sued, and they've lost their building. Uh, The courts have ruled against them after years of litigation, and they're still there, but they realize any day they could be uh, uh, vacated. And they're grateful that Independent Presbyterian Church has already worked out a plan to accommodate them where they can continue to worship downtown while they look for other facilities or build something. Anyway, Mark is a childhood friend. His dad, who's now deceased, was my ear, nose, and throat doctor when I would get earaches when I was a child. A few years ago, we were together, and Mark was telling me and Bob about going with his father to a reunion of sailors who had served on the USS Randolph. The Randolph was in World War II. The last real official thing it did before it was decommissioned was pick up John Glenn from out in his uh, capsule. And I just dated myself. Half of you here don't even know what I'm talking about, but the rest fully understand and uh, so he went, Mark went with his father up to this reunion, I think it was in Virginia Beach, and he said he walked in, and there were a huge crowd of people in these big ballrooms, and he said this, this old salt, this guy that practically looked like Popeye, comes walking up, gives his dad this bear hug, and, and just so excited to see Mark's father. And then he looks at my friend Mark, and he says, so you're, you're Joe's dad. And he said, yeah. He said, man, I love your dad. I love your dad. And he said, well, how do you know my dad so well? He said, let me show you something. And he opened up his shirt, pulled it like that, and Mark said, this massive scar going down his chest. He said, where in the world did you get that? He said, I was on the flight deck of that carrier, and we were in a storm. Planes were coming in, and yet, that, he said, that huge uh, aircraft carrier was just bouncing like this. And at the last minute, I was a signal man, and I'd waved off a plane, but it was too late. plane came on in, propeller hit me. Boom, just like that. He said, I was laying on the deck, and I looked, and all of my insides were out on that flight deck. He said, the next thing I knew, a few days later, I woke up in the hospital of that carrier, and the first face I saw was your father, and he was looking down at me and said, don't worry, son, you're going to be okay. He said, your dad saved my life. He said, I'll never forget that. Isn't that the attitude, this gratitude that Paul had toward Christ, that God has shown mercy on him, that we could have the same? Father, thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for what you've done. I don't think any one of us can share the gospel with passion and power today if we've not had a a comparable personal experience with Christ. Uh, None of our testimonies would be as dramatic as Saul on the road to Damascus. But yet we've experienced his mercy, and we recognize it. I want to tell you about one man who experienced that, who has a great influence on all that we do in our church and in our worship and in our view of the Bible and so forth, and that was John Calvin. Now, I, uh, I went to public schools all my life, and then I went to the University of Alabama, another public school, and I never went to classes where we studied things like this until I was in seminary. And I believe I heard one lesson about John Calvin in a high-level class in college, right before I graduated, and it totally distorted who the man was. So unless you've made a point to read about him, you probably know very little, or what you know may be very skewed about John Calvin. He was born in July of 1509. Last year was the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin. There were numerous conferences around the world. There were books published. There were entire popular magazines that were devoted solely to the life and ministry of John Calvin last year to celebrate the 500th anniversary of his birth. He was born in France, and he loved his native country of France, even though his adult years could not be lived there. He he longed to go back. When Luther nailed those theses to the castle church door in Germany, Calvin was eight years old when that happened. Now, we know very little about his early home life. We do know that when he was 14 years old, his father sent him to the University of Paris to study theology. At that time, the University of Paris had been untouched by the Reformation, and so the theology he was taught was medieval Roman Catholicism. Five years later, something happened, and his father ran afoul of the church, became disillusioned, told his son to leave the study of theology and to begin studying law, which he did for the next three years at Orleans. We know when Calvin was 21 years old, in May of that year, his father died. And at that point, Calvin felt free to turn from the study of law to his first love, which had become classic literature. At age 23, he published his first book, which was a commentary on Seneca. Sometime during those years, around 21 to 23, he came in contact with the message and the spirit of the Reformation. And by 1533, that is when he was 23 years old, something dramatic had happened in his life. Years later, when he wrote about it, he compared his conversion to the, that of Lazarus being raised from the dead. He compared his conversion to that of being a corpse in a tomb, and God called him forth and gave him life. So in his early 20s, John Calvin experienced the miracle of having his blind eyes open to the truth of the gospel. And when his eyes were opened, he saw two things that marked his ministry for the rest of his life. He died at age 54. And so for the next 25 years or so, his ministry was marked by a reverence for the majesty of God and a love for the word of God where God reveals his majesty. Now, persecution in France was now the order of the day, so it forced him to flee from France, to flee for his life. And many others did the same. He ultimately settled in a town of 30,000 people, Geneva, Switzerland. And from there, he devoted himself to the teaching and the preaching of the Bible. He became the minister at St. Peter's Church. The church building and the pulpit where he preached are still there today. At age 31, he married a woman, a widow, who was named Adelette. And she brought into their home a son and a daughter, which he adopted, and he loved her and her children dearly. They had eight years together until she died of tuberculosis. And after his death, which by that time he was uh, 39, he poured himself into his work even more than he'd done before, which already was huge by human standards. I want to tell you a little about, about John Calvin's preaching. Because that legacy has been passed down to us and even affects how preaching is done in this church and in the evangelical world today. First, his preaching was biblical. He believed the minister's chief mandate was to preach the word of God. He wrote this, When we enter the pulpit, it is not so that we may bring our own dreams and fancies with us, He was convinced that as soon as a preacher departs, even in the smallest degree from God's Word, then they cannot preach anything but falsehood, vanities, errors, and deceit. He believed when the Bible speaks that God speaks. And that was the foundation of his preaching, the opening and the explaining, the exposition of the Scriptures. A second characteristic, his preaching was sequential. He would preach through the entire books of the Bible. For 25 years of his ministry at St. Peter's, his approach was to preach systematically through entire books of the Bible. He preached from the New Testament on Sunday mornings. He preached from the New Testament or the Psalms on Sunday afternoons. And then every other week, there would be a sermon every morning of the week. So Monday through Friday, at least, maybe Thursday, he would preach each morning, every other week. And on those sermons, he would preach from the Old Testament. Now, to give you an idea of the scope of that preaching ministry, and it wasn't a small group. Church is much larger than this. There were 3,000 people in, in his parish and, uh, that was, he had a pastoral oversight over. To give you some idea, he began to preach through the book of Acts in August of 1549, and he finished it in March of 1554. That's five years. Five years through the book of Acts. After Acts, he went to the epistles of Thessalonians. Now, those are short, two little short letters, 46 sermons. He preached through 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 186 sermons. The pastoral epistles, 86 sermons. Galatians, 43 sermons. Ephesians, 48 sermons. I preached five, maybe six sermons two years ago from the book of Job. He preached 159 sermons on Job. He preached 200 on Deuteronomy, 353 on Isaiah, 123 on Genesis, and so on. Now, he, like the other Reformers, basically turned their backs on the church calendar. You came to church on Christmas Day? Our text today is Deuteronomy 21. It had no influence. We have record of maybe six times his whole preaching ministry where he diverted away from that sequential type of preaching. His preaching was direct. It was remarkably straightforward and to the point. He typically began a sermon by reviewing his his previous sermon on the subject. And then he proceeded to explain the text, phrase by phrase, the grammar, the historical context, and then he would apply it to everyone's life. One writer said of Calvin's sermons, and he didn't say this because he used big words, he didn't. He tried to use very simple language. One writer said... Every word weighed a pound. (laughs) Weighed a pound. Now, another characteristic, his preaching was extemporaneous. He carried no notes like I've got in front of me, no manuscript into the pulpit. If he was going to preach from the Old Testament, he carried a Hebrew Bible into the pulpit. If he was going to preach from the New Testament, he carried a Greek New Testament into the pulpit. Now he was prepared, he had lots of study, but he felt that the sermon should be spontaneous and it should be lively, and he bemoaned the fact that so much of preaching then was just like lectures and poetry. And so he wanted to speak and build rapport, so he was very extemporaneous, totally extemporaneous in his preaching. They said also it was so simple, you could easily take notes and make an outline if you were sitting and listening to him. His preaching was simple. His aim was to communicate not with the academic elite, but to reach the common person in the pew. And to that end, this brilliant man, this brilliant man intentionally used simple words and language. Now, I hope, I hope that many of you, I assume a few of you, have copies of Calvin's Institutes. That was the four volumes that's now is printed. Most editions have two volumes. They're about that big. When I first saw Calvin's institutes and and purchased those in seminary, our first year we had to read through the institutes. And I was surprised even then, with my poor educational background, how easy it was to understand. But even in preparing this message, I found that he intended his institutes to be written as an explanation of the Christian faith to the uninformed. He was writing to people that didn't know a lot about theology. And these things, he was in his 20s when he wrote Calvin's Institutes. So he was maybe 26 years old. They were revised four or five times and they got longer as it went along. But if you pick up Calvin's Institutes today, besides the language working through translation since they were preached in, or written in French and now translated, they, they read a little rough. It's a very simple language, very simple to understand. It also was written and he was preaching during persecution. When he wrote Calvin's Institutes, he knew of at least 30 friends who were being burned at the stake in France. Burned alive. And that was a terrible way to, to die. It was not quick like we see in the movies. If you've ever read a pretty detailed description of what when someone is burned at the stake, it is a long, pain, slow, painful death. And so these were sermons and ministries that were carried out where the French army was maybe 30 minutes away that could have come, he knew at any time to get him, and they would leave the imagination, anything was open to be done to torture a person. But that's the way the the ministry was carried out. Two other things, and I'll finish. His preaching was evangelistic, uh, despite the way he's often caricatured. He had a passion to reach the lost. He urged his listeners, quote, to be saved through faith, for we must give ourselves to Christ completely. He was a true evangelist. And last of all, I want to say his preaching was filled with gratitude for the glory of God. He had a phrase that he would repeat at the end of almost every sermon. He would exhort his congregation as the sermon came to a close, and he would say, let us fall before the majesty of our great God. Let us fall before the majesty of our great God. His desire in the preaching and in the worship was to lift the congregation to where they felt, I've been in the presence of God. And that's what we see here in these last words of the Apostle Paul. He concludes in verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Spontaneous praise. He says God is eternal. He's the king of the ages. He says God is immortal. He's not subject to death and decay. He says God is invisible. He is beyond the limits. No one has seen God. No one can see him. Fourth, he is the only God. He has no rivals. He has no rivals. I am the Lord, God declares, and there is no other. And so to this great king, immortal, invisible, the only God, with the Apostle Paul, with John Calvin, may we now ascribe all honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have no rivals. You are a great God. You are worthy of our worship. Thank you for our redemption in Christ. Many of our lives were just examples of destruction. Truly, they were roadmaps going nowhere. Many of us were blasphemers, persecutors. We scoffed at those who claimed to be godly, and we were violent. We were contemptuous and arrogant toward other people. Thank you for the power of the gospel that changes that and makes us new creatures.